for joining us for our 2021 Annual Business Law Institute. It is important for us to uphold the Polsonelli tradition of providing an innovative CLE program to our clients, general counsel friends, and Polsonelli alumni. And given the circumstances, we are pleased to be able to do so again this year in a virtual setting. During today's webinar, you will be asked to answer two CLE polling questions. In order to receive your CLE certificate of attendance, you must answer the polling questions. CLE certificates will be emailed within 48 hours after the webinar to all those who answered the polling questions. CLE credit will not be available for on-demand viewing of this program. Please use the Q&A box to submit questions to our speakers throughout the webinar. If they are unable to answer during the live program, our speakers will connect with you via email after the program. If you experience any technical difficulties, please type your question in the Q&A box and our engineer will assist you. To access the materials from today's webinar, please reference the resources tab. Please visit www.bli.polsonelli.com for additional information, including CLE application statuses, a detailed view of this year's schedule, and more. We look forward to connecting with you throughout the summer and coming back together in person next year. I'd now like to pass it over to my colleague to kick off today's program. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Mark Weller. I'm in Polsonelli's Washington, D.C. office, and I'd just like to start by answering a threshold question of why we're having a BLI on federal policy. Uh, the answer to that question um, is that D.C. is important to your companies and to your associations and your organizations for several reasons. Uh, D.C. presence can help expedite needed federal action or delay a costly one. It can enhance your uh, revenues if your company or association is a recipient of federal funds under a uh, contract or grant. In fact, the House of Representatives recently reintroduced uh, congressional earmarks for nonprofits in cities and universities, so there's going to be some renewed activity in that area. D.C. Um, involvement can also help you avoid future or unnecessary regulatory compliance costs and forth. It can um, help you ensure that your current or proposed legislation doesn't impair or redefine the markets that you're operating in and your ability to compete. And if none of that resonates as the economy opens up and we get back to lunch meetings and cocktails after work, perhaps today's session will arm you with some inside information on emergency, emerging or developing um, trends that could be useful to you in some casual conversations. So what we'd like to do uh, today is to uh, address four things. I'm going to talk about the Biden agenda and the political climate in Washington, and then we're going to pivot to uh, legislative vehicles we see uh, coming down um, the road in the healthcare space particularly. We're then going to turn to some of the regulatory efforts as Congress has become more dysfunctional. We're seeing a lot more activity in executive orders and on the regulatory front, and then my colleague Steve Strand is going to finish with some uh, summary thoughts. So with that, uh, I'd like to uh, start by looking at, at, at three questions. Uh, one is, what has been the federal pandemic response? Then we're going to look at the Biden agenda and some things you can look for in the next couple months in Washington. And related to that really is the political climate in D.C. and whether we're going to see some bipartisanship um, emerge, because I think our collective view is that that's at a, at a low point right now. Congress has passed a series of uh, COVID relief bills. It's been a long year for everybody, and, and I think on the federal side, there's been some significant responses. You might look back on uh, March a year ago where there was an $8.3 billion uh, COVID response emergency bill, small in comparison to what came down the pike later on. 
Then phase two was a family first uh, coronavirus act uh, that had $104 billion for the federal agencies to jump in and try to combat the uh, pandemic that addressed sick leave and tax credits, as you might recall, and then got into some of the COVID testing uh, issues as well. I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time advancing the slide here, Ashley. Ashley, can we move to the next slide? Yep, I just hit I hit on to the next slide. Um, try refresh, refreshing your browser. Got it. All right, sorry for the delay, everybody. So phase three was um, the big one. This was a significant piece of legislation that uh, the, the CARES Act that provided um, two trillion, uh, with almost 350 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program. That was the Small Business Lending Program. There's another uh, half um, trillion in general business financing, and then that also included some of the um, uh, cash transfers uh, to individual um, Americans. And then phase four was the, yeah, if you can, I'm having trouble, actually, after this. Um, phase four was the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, that was another almost a, a half trillion that was um, funding for um, the Paycheck Protection Program that was oversubscribed. And then there was some additional money for small business lending and uh, for, on the healthcare side, monies for uh, hospitals and some additional uh, COVID testing uh, monies. Um, and shortly after that phase four uh, monies, there was the House passing a significant uh, measure, the HEROES Act, that stalled in the Senate. I think there was a view there that they wanted to digest uh, some of the previously um, passed bills before um, moving on. If we could go on to the next one. Actually, I've kind of lost my screen. I'm sorry. So we're on phase five. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Uh, the fifth was this uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act. This happened after the election occurred in a lame duck session in December of last year. That was another $900 billion for economic assistance. Uh, the Paycheck Protection Program got another $300 billion in assistance, and then there were new monies for vaccine distribution and, again, uh, individual stimulus monies. And then uh, earlier this year, there was the American Rescue Plan in March, uh, that was $1.9 trillion, that emphasis is T for trillion, that extended uh, some of the pandemic programs that also had direct payments to families along with um, funding for almost all sectors of the economy. Interestingly, that passed Congress with no Republican support using a budget reconciliation maneuver that allows passage by a simple uh, majority. Um, the Democrats were in controlling the House and the Senate, and at that time, uh, we're, we're able to move that through with, without any Republican support using that, that measure. Uh, for those, you know, the U.S. economy is about $22.7 trillion, and if you're quick at math, you might <laughs> those six bills totaled $5.4 trillion, almost 24% of our uh, GDP. The four of your presenters today, I think, probably together have more than 150 years of D.C. 
experience and to a person we would probably agree we've seen nothing like the size of those packages that moved through Congress in the last year, uh, the speed with which they moved through Congress, and frankly the limited number of members that were involved in the negotiations and up to the first five you had Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and, and congressional leadership that were involved in very few others. I know, you know, one senator in that December um, bill, they, they, they saw the language of a several thousand page bill on a Thursday and voted on it on a Friday a day later. So it just the, the speed with which that all um, moved through was, was significant. But um, as they say on the TV infomercials, but wait, there's more. <laughs> and that kind of moves us to the next slide, uh, Ashley. Um, we've moved now into um, the Biden economic uh, agenda with control of both the House and the Senate, and there have been some bills moving through the House dealing with um, voting, civil rights, health care, gun ownership. All those actually have passed uh, the House but are uh, languishing in the, the Senate right now. They may also take on some immigration issues and other things, although that's a bit politically charged. But the, but the top priority of the Biden administration right now uh, is the $2.25 trillion infrastructure and public works package. That has about uh, $600 billion in what we would consider traditional infrastructure for roads, bridges, transit, and other areas. And then $580 billion for workforce development and manufacturing and research to make the U.S. more competitive in the, in the future. Uh, there's $400 billion in that bill for um, elder and disability care. And then over $600 billion for uh, other initiatives, um, rural broadband, you know, um, cleaning up uh, the lead infrastructure and other things, and, and, and housing in the in the country, and then that initiative was followed a couple weeks ago, where President Biden announced a uh, 1.8 trillion American Families Plan that deals with um, um, child care, health care, free community college, and others. Um, you have four trillion here now in, in, in new spending, and so we've, we've kind of learned a new term of human infrastructure uh, with this uh, second uh, phase two American Families Plan, but discussions are ongoing now. Um, I, I think there's a, some concern on the Republican side on the, the size of the package of four trillion and, and uh, concerns about triggering inflation and also about um, the pay-fors with an increase in corporate taxes and an increase proposed in the um, individual rates. Next slide. So then the question then becomes, you know, what's what's the climate in D.C. and what's the uh, outlook for, for these significant initiatives? The, the, the White House maintains that they're still looking for bipartisan agreement, uh, but I think it's fair to say we're not going to see much Republican support for significant um, individual and corporate tax increases um, uh, I, I think there is some uh, fallout from the um, January 6th attacks on the Capitol, and that all remains a sensitive um, issue as we're looking to, toward bipartisanship. Um, and, and then, as I said, as a matter of policy, there is some spending fatigue. Now, my Democratic friends will say, well, what about the $2 trillion in tax cuts under the Trump administration? And, and, and I think that's a fair point. The Republicans have suddenly been concerned about uh, the budget, but it's going to be interesting to see how this um, plays out. Uh, the, the Senate leader, Schumer, has already um, talked about uh, moving these packages through. 
by budget reconciliation, and, and that would avoid, you know, a filibuster on the Republican side and the need to garner a supermajority of 60 votes. Two things would have to happen, though. You couldn't lose any Democrats in the Senate, and then you'd have to have the provisions in the reconciliation bill that addressed either federal outlays or revenues. And so some of these broader issues in the second package, getting into paid leave and clean energy and electricity standards probably don't meet the definition of what you would need to do. And interestingly, the Senate parliamentarian is taking on an enhanced role in kind of determining what qualifies um, under the reconciliation bill. Next bill. I mean, next bill. <laughs> next slide, please. So there's probably three scenarios that we see uh, over the next couple months, which you should be looking out for as you read through the news. One is I think Democrats could lump everything into one large uh, reconciliation bill for fiscal uh, 22. Secondly, you could see an ability to move multiple reconciliation bills, um, meaning you could do this American Jobs Plan in parts. Uh, Schumer has already asked the parliamentarian for three reconciliation bills. They've actually gone back and tried to change last year's budget resolution, and which would allow them to do a, a, another reconciliation bill and have three bites at the apple. I think there'd be a lot of concern about you know trying to do that without bipartisan support, but that's certainly one option if they feel they're not making progress in their discussions. And then a third option might be you could see a traditional uh, infrastructure or, or, or smaller surface transportation bill trying to address the needs of the country for roads, bridges, transit, what have you, and then shift and do some of the other parts of reconciliation for um, the American Jobs Plan and have no Republican support for that. So those are kind of some of the approaches that we see and what you might look out for the next month or two as these negotiations uh, continue on. I'm going to stop there. I think my colleague Harry Spiritus is going to talk about some legislative vehicles, but before that, Ashley might have a polling question for everybody. I do. Thanks, Mark. This is the first CLE polling question for today's program. You must answer to receive CLE credit. You should see the question in the slides box. Budget reconciliation is a special process that needs only a simple majority vote in the Senate. Please select true or false and hit the submit button located in the lower right-hand corner of the slides box. If for some reason you are not seeing the polling question on your screen, please refresh your browser and try again. Again, budget reconciliation is a special process that needs only a simple majority vote in the Senate. Please select true or false and hit submit in the lower right-hand corner of the slides box. If you continue to have issues um, with submitting, please email events at polsonelli.com. Again, if you still continue to have any issues hitting submit um, on the polling question, please email events at polsonelli.com. I'm going to give you guys another 45 seconds to answer. Again, select true or false and hit submit in the lower right-hand corner of the slides box. You guys another 15 seconds. And final reminder, if you do have any issues with hitting submit, email events at polsonelli.com. And I'm going to pass it over to Harry. Thank you. 
Well, thank you so much. And I want to thank everybody for being on the call today. It looks like we have uh, well over 700 people on this call today. And thank you all for, for tuning in and listening. Um, in this new world of Microsoft Teams meetings, Zoom meetings, and webinars, if you start hearing a dog barking incessantly in the background, that would be my miniature golden doodle that is sitting right next to me. So let me apologize in advance for that happening. Um, I want to talk here about legislative vehicles that could lead to major reforms. And we can just move on over to the next slide, and I bet I can do it myself. Look at that. I can do it myself. Um, and I picked these um, four bills, uh, Prescription Drug User Fee Act, Medical Device User Fee Act, Generic Drug User Fee Act, and Biosimilars User Fee Act, because these are what we call must-pass pieces of legislation. These pieces of legislation come up every five years for reauthorization. And basically what ends up happening is that currently right now, you, you most likely have representatives of pharma, which is the, the big you know, pharmaceutical um, association, um, representatives of AdvaMed, which is the Medical Device Association, uh, represent, uh, representatives of AAM, which represents the generic manufacturers, um, and representatives of Bio, which represents the biotech industry, all individually mapping out agreements with the FDA currently on the next round of user fees that will be done over the next five years. The user fees are basically the way private industry pays into the FDA to get their drugs and their devices and products approved. So when you have these user, fee, these user fees, it's pharma actually giving money or, or putting money into the pot over at FDA, and then FDA uses that money to um, review and, and approve drugs, devices, et cetera. The interesting thing about this is that every time the user fees come up, you hear uh, pharma and AdvaMed and others say, we want what's called a clean user fee act, which would mean that it's only the user fees. It's only going to reauthorize the user fees, and it's not going to do anything else to stymie the process. But more often than not, you have drug companies, device companies, biotech companies, the generics, and others use these vehicles to also suggest or have the FDA go in certain directions or streamline um, regu the regulatory process, the review process, and the approval process for their products. So one of the reasons why I brought, I wanted to talk about the, you know, the, uh, the UFA bills, which, which is what we call them in, the, in, uh, in, in our world of, you know, the DC world, um, the user fee bills, is because so often um, you all out there are mired in working with the agency for your clients to try to get something done, um, you know, whether it be with the FDA or, or other agencies, but the FDA specifically for this presentation. Um, one of the things that I wanted to suggest is that now that you have these user fee bills that are supposed to come up in the following year, next year, which is going to be within this Congress, um, and generally they, these are – these are legislative vehicles that flow on a bipartisan nature. Now, this is a little bit of a, a tricky year uh, in terms of bipartisanship, but um, there are ways that you can kind of maneuver and use both the legislative and the regulatory process to work in maybe your client's favor. So if you're, if you're working on something for a client, 
and it's and you're not you're not getting anywhere with the agency, you could possibly just change the law, um, and you can use these vehicles um, in 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 essence in a way to maybe get a provision in for a client or um, work with with a member of Congress that your client um, is headquartered in to see if there's a possibility to kind of maneuver something through in this regard. And again, these bills come up every five years. Uh, these are what we call, again, must-pass pieces of legislation. This is something that's extremely important for the industry uh, to get through. So you'll have nothing but um, support from pharma, AdvaMed, Bio, and AAM to get their bills off the Congress's desk and onto the president's desk for signature. Um, so that's where I'm going to end my presentation. I'm not going to take too much time. We also have other uh, healthcare-related bills coming up. You know, there's, there's, they're looking at doing a Medicare reform package, which would be part of reconciliation. That's not necessarily a must-pass piece of legislation. These, le these legislative vehicles are must-pass pieces because this is actually how the agencies conduct their business with industry. So with that, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave it there. I, I, I promise to be brief and I'm going to pass it on. Thank you so much for, for being on and thank you so much for listening. Julius, I think you might be on mute. I'm sorry. I was talking and didn't realize that. Okay. You're all good uh, now. Okay. Thanks, Harry. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the, the regulatory process. When Congress is, is acting, you can watch the House on C-SPAN 1 or the Senate on C-SPAN 2. But when they get through, uh, they delegate to the executive branch the authority to write regulations to implement the law. And that's uh, the part that doesn't, doesn't show up on television. It's not, there is no C-SPAN to watch this process. So how did we get here? Uh, we've had an administrative state that essentially began in the late uh, 1880s, but it really picks up as a result of the Great Depression and the New Deal and all of the agencies and departments that were created under Franklin Delano Roosevelt and then some issues where those who didn't like what was happening were suing, the courts became involved. Uh, so after the, the Second World War, Congress moved to try to reorganize things within the executive branch, creating a national defense establishment and things like that. Well, one of the things they passed was the Administrative Procedures Act. And this is a compromise between the public, uh, the, the interest groups and the executive branch as a means of, of how the regulatory process would operate, everybody would know what the rules were in terms of how that gets done. So regulations are, are important. Uh, they have rulemaking and lawmaking functions. Uh, they, uh, uh, when, when they make, when departments and agencies make regulations, they in effect are legislating. Uh, Congress delegates authority to these agencies uh, and, and, and departments to do so. Uh, I would say in the last 25 years or so, Congress has written less detailed legislation and has delegated more to departments and agencies uh, to write the regulations themselves. Uh, 
what that does is it leaves room for interpretation by by these departments and agencies. The courts have ruled that they are under the Chevron exception uh, able to interpret their own their own rules. But sometimes this doesn't work out. Uh, anyone who's familiar with uh, Health Resources and Services Administration and the 340B uh, discount drug program knows exactly what I'm talking about, about a statute that was poorly written and uh, not giving HRSA clear delegated authority. Uh, it has, that, that agency has lost every court suit, uh, and Congress needs to go back and, and, and do that. Uh, and the other thing you keep in mind is that these rules and regulations are, are initially drafted by career staff. Uh, so they have a, 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 a great deal of responsibility uh, in this uh, in this process. Um, and then the rulemaking process is, in essence, is that the Congress passes a law, uh, the department or agency has to has to draft proposed rules. Um, those proposed rules are then submitted to the Office of Management Budgets, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and that office is responsible for reviewing draft uh, regulations, and they're usually given about 60 days. Uh, this office actually has a dashboard, and when proposed rules are, are written uh, and submitted, they show up on the dashboard. So you can literally set the calendar in terms of, of what that looks like. Once uh, OMB has given, the, uh, has given the green light, those proposed rules are published in the Federal Register. Normally, and, and, and that allows for public comments. That process normally is about 60 days. Uh, the interesting thing is the average number of comments across the board on, uh, on, on proposed federal regulations is about six for each regulation. But obviously there's some regulations that, that get infinitely more comments, things like uh, physician fee schedule, hospital inpatient and outpatient regulations, those get significant uh, significant comments. Uh, the, by law, uh, departments and agencies are required to take those comments into into account, uh, and then what they're supposed to do is then draft the final rule. And uh, when they have drafted that final rule, they then submit that again to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs at OMB for uh, review for, for the final rule. Uh, again, that's about 60 days, uh, and assuming they get the approval, then the regulations are published in the federal regulation federal register, and then they can take uh, they can take effect. If you go through the normal rulemaking process, it can take up to about 260 days uh, to to do this. This is not always the the uh, the case. Um, Mark talked earlier about some of the COVID uh, legislation, and uh, that has resulted in some instances where there were what's known as interim final rules uh, were published in the Federal Register because they wanted to move uh, that right, uh, right away. One of those is, uh, that has just come out, for example, is, uh, is aid to state and local governments. So the other thing that has occurred that's, that uh, – started under the uh, Trump administration and it has continued under the Biden administration, politics notwithstanding, is what's known as RFI, Request for Information. 
Uh, this is really a valuable opportunity for uh, interest groups and stakeholders uh, to uh, to comment on on information that's requested from a department or, or agency, and they allow for uh, all of the interested parties to to provide comments uh, and and to make suggestions on 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 a particular program or project that the federal government is considering. And one of the things you always want to do is encourage uh, interest groups and uh, and other stakeholders to to uh, submit their comments when when uh, they have that opportunity. Uh, it is a problem, as I said. You know, when you look at the average number of comments that are submitted across the board, that you you tend to want to speak up when you can. But I go back to where I started, which is uh, this doesn't get the kind of coverage in terms of policy making that the legislative process does, uh, simply because it's just not open uh, on to, to video. It it uh, it doesn't operate that way. So it doesn't get as much uh, attention, but it is just as important as the legislative process. Uh, that concludes my part of the presentation, and I'm going to turn it over to Steve Straining, my colleague. Steve. Hey, well, hello, everybody. My name is uh, Steve Straining, and. Um, uh, Again, we appreciate your uh, time today. I'm so angry with Harry because the second he mentioned his uh, his dog, my puppy started out uh, barking away. So I'll make the same apology. But uh, what what we were hoping to talk about here with our uh, our closing moments is to walk through some practical tips on how uh, the practicing attorneys can integrate themselves into lobbying efforts. Uh, On a a personal note, I would urge all of you to seize the moment if you have an opportunity to be involved in some way in advocacy. Uh, It uh, it, it provides a fantastic tool in many ways to try to get uh, better outcomes for your clients, but it's also very interesting, very fun, and what we've seen over the years is a lot of times that our colleagues or clients who have um, uh, gathered some experience in this area, it helps them with their career uh, development. It helps them get that promotion or to get that new job where they can take on greater responsibilities as somebody who knows how to, for example, manage litigation and also how to help oversee a government relations effort. Um, the uh, uh, the the emphasis of what we wanted to highlight today is on this slide and the next slide. And we've boiled this down to uh, six best practices in how to involve yourself as an attorney in uh, lobbying efforts. Um, the... Uh, 
the 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 first best practice that uh, almost anyone will will mention to you is the importance of establishing relationships with policymakers if you can. And again, the the caveat if you can is important. Many times we'll have a client come to us, they have a problem, an issue that is cropped up, and they need to immediately go from zero to 60 miles an hour in establishing relationships with their congressional delegation or their state representatives or regulators at the federal and state level. And that's okay. But in in the ideal situation, uh, uh, we'll take the clients and start to establish these relationships over time so that the first time um, uh, a lawmaker is introduced to a company, you're not necessarily asking for something. Uh, and you can imagine that site visits or visits to help explain uh, the, the client's business or their operations with uh, policymakers goes a long way towards uh, uh, building a long-term relationship. The second best practice is to identify opportunities for advocacy. And this is where your position representing these companies and your experience understanding their issues and your legal experience provide a, 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 a real advantage in understanding and being able to issue spot that there are situations where if we could just modify or clarify the regulatory language, or if we could clarify the legislative language, we may be able to provide a real meaningful advantage to our clients. The third best practice is to make sure that the request is clear and unambiguous. The uh, the, the idea here is that, and, and this is where we see a, a, a lot of um, efforts fail, is in uh, uh, failing to provide the policymakers with a very clear request, something that they can act on. Uh, we need you to forward this letter to this person. We need Congress to pass legislation that includes this phrase, modifying this provision, right? These advocacy efforts are, 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 are times to be uh, very clear and specific in what you're asking each person to do. The fourth best practice is uh, to secure the right advocacy team. And we're gonna talk a little more about that as we get to the uh, next slide. Our fifth, our fifth best practice is to anticipate the questions that the policymakers are going to ask, to anticipate the problems and opposition that might uh, emerge to the change in policy that you're requesting. And again, this is where your involvement 
as an attorney, as part of the advocacy team, can be extremely valuable. We are all trained as attorneys to um, uh, to to, to uh, make sure that we have an answer to every question before we ask it, and to make sure that we're anticipating whether it's in a courtroom or in a contract negotiation, that we anticipate the issues that are going to come up and we have responses for those. And it's that sort of training and that sort of discipline that serves us very well on the advocacy side. And, uh, and it also, I think, if you're part of uh, a, a group that's overseen government relations effort or if you're involved in one, it's a very meaningful way in which you all can contribute. And of course, the sixth best practice is to remain actively engaged. I w wanted to talk a little bit about getting the right team in place to be successful in a lobbying effort. And you'll see here, if, if any of you are, are uh, caught up in a situation in the future in which you need to jump on a conference call or something and start to sketch out an approach that could involve government relations, these two slides here I think will give you a good starting point. You see our first point here is to make sure that your team in some way has the uh, has people with the policy expertise to know how to craft clever potential solutions, to know how to put forward rationales that are going to resonate with the decision makers. And of course, in many instances, these rationales, this isn't going to be citing uh, legal precedent. This is typically going to be citing economic arguments or clinical arguments or technical scientific arguments. And um, you need to make sure that you have the people on your team that understand what's persuasive and important for the folks that are working at the government and also have the expertise to come up with these technical responses. You want to ensure that you have people on the team that fully understand the process and the levers of government. And you, you've already heard today a lot of discussion about how, uh, how um, the, the legislative decision-making process in Washington works. Of course, there's a whole other layer of issues dealing with the federal agencies and dealing with the um, uh, and, and dealing with both the career staff and the politically appointed staff at these agencies, as you heard Julius talk about. The third thing about pulling together the right team is to trust your gut. Like any situation involving advocacy, whether it's in the courtroom, whether it's at the negotiation table, you want to make sure that your gut tells you that these are the people that are going to be zealous advocates for your client. And finally, um, the, uh, the, you, you want to make sure that you have members of your team who are eloquent 
when they are presenting arguments, but also able to put together the written documents that so often are the cornerstone of these advocacy efforts. So with that, I'll turn things over to Ashley. Great, thank you. Everyone, this is your final CLE polling question for today's program. Again, you must answer to receive CLE credit. You should see the question in the slides box. Best practices in advocacy include presenting a clear, unambiguous request for action by policymakers, presenting persuasive rationales, and preparing responses to potential questions and opposition. Please select true or false and hit the submit button located in the lower right-hand corner of the slides box. If for some reason you are not seeing the polling question on your screen, please refresh your browser, select true or false, and hit submit again. Again, best practices in advocacy include a pre include presenting a clear, unambiguous request for action by policymakers, presenting persuasive rationales, and preparing responses to potential questions and opposition. Again, select true or false and hit the submit button located in the lower right-hand corner of the slides box. If you continue to have any issues with submitting, please email events at polsonelli.com. Again, you'll email events at polsonelli.com. And if you are online for the first question had issues, please send a note again uh, to the events inbox and we'll make note for our reporting team. I'm gonna give you guys another 30 seconds to answer. Ashley, this is awesome. I can see everyone's getting it right. <laughs> Over 600 people have gotten it right so far. That's great. Easy question, though, Steve. Hey, I'm an easy grader. All right, guys, we actually do have some time and received some live polling, some live questions um, into our Q&A box. Um, I will pass it back to our speakers to answer those questions. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, this is Mark Weller. There was some discussion in my presentation on the budget reconciliation process, and a question came in um, about the debt ceiling and debt suspension and whether that could be extended through the reconciliation process, or would you need a separate vote? Julius, do you want to uh, take that one on? Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the odds of that happening are, are, are not good, and uh, Republicans have stated that uh, where we are now is that the debt ceiling was extended and it expires July 31st. Uh, Senate uh, Republican Leader McConnell has said that, that uh, Republicans – will support uh, a new debt limit or an extension in return for uh, spending cuts. Uh, Democrats are not going to go along with that, so we're looking at a possibility of a standoff in, in, uh, in July. Uh, but in all likelihood, this will get extended maybe before, for a short period of time, such as to the end of the calendar year. Okay, thanks, Julius. There's another one that I think falls in your wheelhouse, Julius, and that was um, does a, a response to an agency a request for information have the effect of an actual regulation pending adoption of the uh, regulation? What would you say to that? Oh, that's a good question. No. Requests for information is, is, is just that. Uh, that may, you know, sometimes agencies will ask that, you know, ask for that kind of information prior to drafting a rule, but that is that the request itself is not a rule, but it can lead to one, and that's why if you see an RFI, uh, 
that's within your bailiwick, uh, you're you're strongly advised to take the opportunity to comment uh, because it's 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 a lot easier if you can submit comments and try to influence the department or agency before they get into the drafting process than it is after they uh, they have uh, published proposed rules. Okay, that's great. There's another question that came in on a specific piece of legislation. I don't know if anybody um, on the team has um, addressed this, but it's a bipartisan piece of legislation that would permit a college student athlete to commercialize their name and image and likeness um, and preempt uh, state laws in the, in, in the space. And it asks if we have any insights on the likelihood of initiative like that passing by the end of June. Why don't I just start and you all could jump in and I could start generally and then move to some specifics. I would say this. I think it's much easier in Congress to stop something than to move something. Um, and so it doesn't take a lot of skill uh, to throw the wrench in the works and put a hold on the bill, especially in the Senate where once they're a hold and you're moving on a consensus basis, it's, it's pretty tough to move something unless there's complete uh, buy-in. I think, secondly, after 40 years in Washington, I've learned that you follow the money, and I'd, I'd want to know what the opposition to the bill is. I know the NCAA currently holds sway over names and likenesses and things like this, and if you're beginning to get into revenue issues, there may be some current concerns there that, if not worked out, could, could create some problems. So in terms of timing and, and June passage of the House and Senate, I, I, I'd want to know the number of co-sponsors. Is there a consensus on the bill? Has there been a hearing? Um, uh, you know, really, you know, it has the floor been cleared for for action where they could move that through? I think it's probably would be not knowing the specifics and maybe aggressive to think you could do something um, by June unless there was leadership buy-in and very little opposition. Anybody else want to elaborate on that? Yes, Julius. I would I would simply add there are a couple of states that have already done this. Uh, but not having had the full-blown hearing and discussion, the, the thought that this could be done by June, Mark is correct, that, that seems very, very uh, unlikely. Uh, could we be moving to this eventually? It's possible. NCAA is supposed to be producing some new regulations that would allow athletes to uh, make money uh, that, would, um, uh, that, that has anything to do with the uh, use of their image by, by a university. But in terms of anything else, in terms of Congress, I just don't see that by June. Okay. Yeah. There's is, another. This is oh, Steve. Dr. Steve. Before Go ahead. Yeah. You, go. I, you know, the, I, I think the other thing that's worth noting here is um, that uh, not necessarily germane to the likelihood of uh, success on this bill, but 90% of what we do does not require the enactment of legislation. We might be working with uh, legislators in Congress or in, uh, in state houses to help support initiatives, but often the executive branch and the, um, the different agencies can get a lot of the things that our clients need fixed. Um, they, they can get her done, as they say. So just wanted to highlight that. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. There was another question that came in as we were talking about this $2.25 trillion American Jobs Plan, the big infrastructure uh, bill, and the question was what's the, the, the timing of all this and getting something final 
and and signed. Uh, Harry, Julius, when do you want to take that one on on what we're hearing about when negotiations can finish up and when they would move that and what the deadlines are? Well, it all depends, really. I mean, you know, right now, I, this is Harry. I, I, there really isn't any negotiations going on with Republicans at the moment. I mean, I, I think the the uh, the Democrats in the House and Senate want to move something pretty fairly quickly. Um, this this could be a two part um, a two part process where uh, the Democrats negotiate a smaller package, let's say it's 610, 640 billion, um, to be done with Republicans on infrastructure. And then run the rest through um, without dem- without Republican support at all during a reconciliation bill, and that is pretty much likely to happen. Um, and the reconciliation. And Julius, if you want to jump in, please do. Oh, I I fully agree that that's that's exactly what I would anticipate that will happen, especially since uh, the uh, the leadership uh, had their meeting at the White House today on infrastructure. They've all commented that they thought it went well, but again, uh, Republican Senate Republican Leader McConnell said that they're opposed to raising uh, you know, any taxes or having anything to do with altering the 2017 uh, tax bill that was tax law that was enacted under under then President Trump. Uh, so Harry Harry is correct. You may see a smaller package that gets negotiated on a bipartisan basis and then something else that gets done through reconciliation. And, Julius, just on the timing of reconciliation, as we look at kind of the congressional calendar with usually, you know, a, a push in July, June and July, time off in August, and then you're back um, with the, the the calendar, is there a time with which if, they, if they're going to start to try to move things in reconciliation, they need to get going? What What would people want to look for there? Well, what you want to look for is because of the rule of the Senate parliamentarian, they can do a second budget reconciliation bill in the current fiscal year, but they would have to pass a uh, new budget resolution that that uh, modifies the previous one, and then that would allow for for another reconciliation bill. But you would have to do that before the current fiscal year ends, September 30. So you'd have to move fairly quickly to be able to do that. Because there's no filibuster in the Senate, uh, reconciliation bill is 20 hours of debate equally divided. They can do that. But what what would have to happen for Democrats, which is hard for them at the moment, is that they would all have to agree because their margin for majority in the House is slim and the Senate's 50-50. So they would all have to agree in advance to do that. So they, they could. The third reconciliation bill, they would have time after that, and that would be based on President Biden's fiscal year 2022 budget submission, which we expect to see sometime this month, uh, and they could do that sometime later in the fall. Uh, and that the timing on that could take us all the way to the end of the year. It's an odd number of year, and I always say an odd number of year. Uh, don't make plans for, for Christmas if you're in this business about going anywhere because they may well be here all the way up to that point. And that gets back, this is Mark Weller again, to the end of my presentation where we looked at those uh, scenarios where if you do a traditional infrastructure bill and then save some of the other pieces, um, I'm 
sorry, do a, a, a surface transportation bill where there's buy-in and then do things through reconciliation. There does have to be buy-in, which is, I think, the point Julius was making, and, and you can't lose any Democrats. Joe Manchin and others that are a little bit more conservative on the Democratic side are, have some resistance already to the 29% corporate tax rate and some of the other issues. And so I think we probably will see some fallback from the big numbers and, and that we've seen announced and, and, and where they end up is, I think, what will the, the kind of things that are going to have to get worked out over the next um, couple of weeks. So, Ashley, I think that hits some of the high points from some of the questions uh, I saw. Um, there's another one that just came in on the likelihood of a tax increase being retroactive as it relates to capital gains. You might recall there was a uh, for higher income individuals a proposal is to um, uh, raise the 20% uh, capital gains tax. So, Julius, again, that might be you. So, if you looked at something moving through on reconciliation on the tax side, um, I think the question would be, would, could that affect transactions that have occurred here in this calendar year of 21? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, that's a good question. Normally, when, when they do tax legislation, they don't do things like that retroactively. Uh, what you would do is you would look at a bill when it gets introduced. Sometimes uh, the language in the bill may say effective on the day it was introduced, but in all likelihood, something like that, would be effective in the next tax year. Uh, everyone recognizes the unfairness of, of trying to do something like that retroactively, and I can't recall anyone doing anything like that uh, any time in the, in the last 20 or 30 years. Right. Uh, I think even in the major 86 tax reform that cut rates, you, there you had not changes occurring at the beginning of the year, but they would say from, from the date forward where you might have had the House or Senate bill introduced so people were on That's notice, right. but more likely it's going to be a 2022 play, and at the earliest it might be sometime this summer when you'd actually see specific bill language. Exactly. But what, if, I, if I can add to that, what you could see, though, is if, that, if this type of legislation goes through, there are a um, large group of members of Congress that would like to see the um, state and local tax deductions reinstated. That you could see um, be included into this package and could also be retroactive. That could happen. I agree with that also. All right. Well, thank you guys for um, speaking today. Um, I believe that's all of our live questions that we received. This does conclude today's webinar. CLE certificates will be emailed within 48 hours directly to all who answered the polling questions. A recorded version of the presentation will be available on the BLI website within 48 hours. CLE, CLE credit will not be available for on-demand viewings of the program. Thank you all for your participation.